Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's over. 40 days and 40 nights, just like the Creator promised. Honey, I think this time in the Ark has been really good for our marriage. I feel so much closer to you. I still can't believe I forgot the unicorns. How could I forget the unicorns? (laughs) Well, I'm sure you can apologize to them the next time you see them. No, I can't. There aren't going to be any more unicorns ever. Do you not get that? Honestly, sometimes I wonder if you're paying any attention to what's happening. Anything that is not on this ark is gone forever. That is the whole point of the ark. Noah, now you're getting yourself all worked up. I wanted to remind you that we're having dinner with the Denizens next Wednesday night. It's Harriet's birthday. We're not. See, this is what I mean. The Denizens are gone. I know they go to Moab every year for a couple months, but they're always back for Harriet's birthday. Remember last year you wore that hat that everybody said No, 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 no. Look... All in whose nostrils was the merest breath of life, all that was on dry land, died. All existence on earth was blotted out. Man, cattle, creeping things, birds of the sky, they were blotted from the earth, including the denizens. You know, for the record, I never liked them. They wet their nests. The denizens? No, silly. Unicorns. You know what we should do right now? Take a selfie. The sun is out. We've got Mount Ararat in the background. Ham... Shem, bring up Japheth and Ela. We're going to take a selfie. That's what people do nowadays. Mom, this is like the dorkiest thing ever. Um, Mrs. Noah, I haven't brushed my hair in 40 days, so I'd rather not. Okay, here we go. Is everybody in? Okay, everybody smile. Aw, so cute. Now, can one of you tweet it to the creator? He'll get such a kick out of it. Shem, take my phone. I don't know how to do the Twitters. Mom, I showed you like 40 times. Honey, I don't think this is such a good idea. This flood was the creator's big thing. I assume he's looking at us right now. Noah, darling, if it were up to you, we would never be in touch with anybody. You are such an old stick in the water. The rest of you, get ready for a show about the movie Noah and a conversation with Charla Nash. And now he was stuck behind an ark for two hours on I-84. They're just no good in the snow. Colin McEnroe. Yeah, from a certain point of view, Noah should have had a Subaru. I mean, they're really, just in terms of really bad weather and stuff like that, I think they're better than ARCs. All right, this is big, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, this is really big. I mean, we could be accused of being on this show sort of a sniveling outpost of Slate toadyism because we do love Slate.com and we have uh, people from there on all the time. June Thomas, Stephen Metcalf, Emily Bazelon, Willa Paskin, Mike Pesco, John Swansburg. I could go on. This is big. We've got the big guy now. The editor-in-chief of Slate, David Plotz, joins us today. Uh, And as we do on Mondays on The Scramble, uh, we asked him what he wants to talk about. First of all, David Plotz, we are uh, honored beyond words uh, that you are joining us today. Oh, I'm so glad to be here, Colin. I don't think a su- the thing about the arc, if you look at the arc, it is it just doesn't have a lot of steering. No, not a lot of steering and the aerodynamics of the one in the movie anyway. Very boxy. Very, very boxy. Very boxy, really. It's like uh it's like um like a Honda know, Element. 
Is that uh, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, I had a Sienna minivan. It's really kind of similar to that. Yeah, it is. It's just like a big minivan. So uh, David Platz uh, wants to talk about the movie Noah, uh, which I went to see this weekend, which he has also seen. Uh, in contemplating Noah, I decided to go back to one of the most trusted biblical scholars that I can think of, who wrote in 2006, what a chilling account of the flood and the, of the loneliness of Noah. Even the good man, even the righteous man is alone in the world and always sub- subject to God's awesome power. This is pretty raw. It also seems to me to offer at least a clue about why God destroyed the earth. It seems clear that the pre-deluge evils were not crimes of men against other men, but crimes of men against God. As men mastered agriculture and metalworks and built cities, which earlier verses suggest they did, they felt they didn't need God. They came to see their laws, achievements, and prosperity as their own, accomplished independently of God. So perhaps the point of the flood was not to restore ordinary moral behavior, day-to-day decency, law, etc., but to restore faith or at least fear. So, uh, David Platz, that was you uh, writing in 2006, uh, blogging the Bible for Slate.com. And you kind of nailed it as far as the movie goes, at least in terms of the loneliness of Noah, right? He does come across in this movie. Uh, Aaron, uh, Darren Aronofsky made your your vision of Noah kind of a lonely guy isolated from everybody. Well, he made part of it, certainly that part of it, the the Noah part and Noah's Noah's sense that that, uh, all other people on Earth, except the few people in his family, were different, um, was is a defining part of the movie, and it's a, it's terribly uh, wrong-headed in my view. But uh, we can talk about that. Well, wrong-headed in what way? Well, I think it, we're, sorry, it's wrong-headed in where it takes the implications of that, which is it then concludes that all the aspects of human civilization, human behavior, which are not Noah-like, that is, anyone working, anyone aspiring to progress, anyone attempting to master the natural landscape. Uh, anyone attempting to live in groups, that those are intrinsically evil themselves, and they create in the human beings who do it uh, uh, just pure malevolence, so that any scene that is shown that isn't in this kind of empty agrarian world that Noah occupies, all the other scenes, it's just people crowded on each other, people raping each other, people murdering each other. There's no, there's no sense that you could live in a community of other people, groups of other people, and that that actually could be a positive experience. I mean, one of the odd things about this particular vision of Noah, that's, by the way, the number one box office movie of the weekend, is that its pre-apocalyptic vision of mankind is kind of post-apocalyptic, right? I mean, it, it, I, I started thinking of it halfway through the movie as the boat warrior. There's kind of like this Mad Max vision of these packs of mindlessly violent, grasping, horrible, as you say, raping, uh, pillaging, uh, murdering people running around and, and, and doing absolutely nothing redeeming. Um, it, it's almost as though his vision of the way mankind was before the deluge is now the vision that's sold in dystopian movies about something that we've done that's caused the wreckage of everything. Right. That's very well put, the pre-apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic world. That's right. And it's, it's, um, it is, uh, again, I just think it's, it has a very strange view about work, for example, or about the, the human desire for progress and the human desire for humans to succeed and grow. And it sees that, that it depicts those things as being quite uh, anathema to God's will, anathema to the earth, that there is no reconciling our own desire to have material prosperity, to live in groups, to work hard. There's no reconciling that with what God wants for us. 
Although, is that such a strange thing to be saying? I mean, I mean, uh, just, you know, you go through the week's news probably even more carefully than I do as editor-in-chief of Slate and the host of the political gab fest. You know, you, you look at the papers today, there's obviously the report on global warming, which is completely terrifying, even, I mean, really kind of suggestive, uh, an easy transition from the movie uh, Noah to this report in terms of, you know, the food shortages and all kinds of scary absolutely. things. And, and, no, and absolutely. And you, you read in the paper in, about the Wisconsin open iron mine. We probably both read the same news. New York Times article about that this weekend. Pick up the op-ed page of the Times today. It's about the the tar sands of, of Canada. I mean, is it such a strange view to say, wow, yeah, these are the works of men. We are wrecking the planet right now. Well, I, I, it's not Aronofsky's, insofar as he's attempting to create a, a story about what we are doing to the Earth, is not wrong that the Earth is in deep trouble. Obviously, the Earth is in deep trouble. But it's a, it's a very... Uh, bizarre leap for me to say the earth is in deep trouble and therefore we'd be better off with a lot fewer human beings namely you know everybody who everybody who isn't isn't uh you know isn't living in some some uh prelapsarian agrarian paradise should be dead to me the idea is if you look at at uh how progress works and how uh our despoilation of the earth works cities are actually really great Cities are good for the earth. Cities concentrate a lot of people in one place, so we, we despoil a, a smaller part of the world. They create prosperity. They lower birth rates. They, they create longer life expectancy. They're more efficient for the world. And, and actually, a world in which we're, which we're highly conurbanated would be a, a better world to live in, not a world where we, we're all you know, uh, hunter-gatherer farmers burning, burning down trees to create the the warmth that we need so i i I don't i guess i don't like any any vision of environmental solution which says the the solution is 90 percent of people or 70 percent of people or 50 percent of people need to be dead Mm -hmm. and that that will make things better no the answer is these people are here people are going to continue to want the species to continue as we should and given that what are the most efficient best ways for us to live on the planet and not not ruin it and i would say cities would be number one um uh, on the flip side you actually like this movie i i borderline intensely disliked it but um really but, but well, I, let's talk about that all right well first of all this i mean i actually do think that you make the best case for the movie so you should make it well my case for the movie is is um that the inside this gigantic cgi blockbuster with where the CGI is actually pretty terrible even though they spent all this money there's there's the 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 special effects are not very good the uh, there's this they've incorporated these bizarre rock monsters into it I don't know if your listeners have heard this but there are these characters called the watchers who are giant rock rock angels uh, who are just rendered poorly and they move poorly uh, and the ark itself is not that impressive, and the flood is not that impressive, and the animals are horribly left out of the whole equation. There are basically two scenes of animals, even though the animals are the only reason anyone cares about Noah's Ark story. The animals are, are essentially just shunted away and hidden. Um, despite all that, hidden inside of that is a quite emotionally gripping family movie about a man going crazy and his sense about what his family should be and and how how uh, the people in his family and, and outside of it should relate to each other. And I actually think, like, Aronofsky as a director, I, the movies of his, I, I, I kind of hated most of his movies, but I think The, uh, the Wrestler, the movie mm-hmm. about 
the you know, washed up pro wrestler is this tiny little movie about one man's struggle in a world which is is uh, increasingly alien to him. It's basically the same movie, in fact, when you think about it. And it was a, it's so good because it's so small and small, small, intense emotional scenes. And I, 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 I really like the parts of Noah that were like that. So now tell, make the case against it. Well, I, I don't want to make a case against it because, um, I mean, my own experience was my own experience. I was, I, I was put off by many of the things that you just described in your preamble. The rock monsters really did not work for me. Yeah. Um, and I was put off a little bit by the way that this is, is a kind of a compression of a bunch of different Bible stories plus some paradise lost. Uh, you kind of get Abraham and Isaac by implication yep. uh, towards the yep. end of the it was They couldn't just do one Bible story. You had to do about eight of them. And then pile on top of it is this kind of action movie in which there's just a lot of fighting. You know, there's just a <laughs> they're like these really horrible people and they have to be fought. Uh, and and eventually the there are scenes that kind of look like parts of Lord of the Rings when the Ents, the big tree people, are picking up horrible orcs and flinging them around. Uh, it's the rock monsters doing the same thing. And I was thinking, I, I'd almost rather, I would rather see the David Plotz version of this, which is the, what you just described, this psychological portrait of this main... Stru- I mean, it's enough that there's a flood, there's animals, there's God, you know, issuing commands, uh, there's all the things going on in the family I, I feel that like it's sort of a, it's bloodying the lily to, to add all this other really weird gruesome stuff that, that doesn't really need to be there yeah maybe i, I I'm, I'm not gonna i'm not gonna argue with you too much well i, I mean, cleverly it's, it's did it that's like that's too long and too big yeah much better smaller and quieter i cleverly objected to it by flattering you uh which is one of the ways i have of disarming um that you could have disarmed us rock monsters they have six arms they would have been better with just two did you notice that the one rock monster who's nice looks a little bit like sort of a portuguese water dog or a poodle he has kind of a different face than the other rock monsters he has these kind of nice round eyes um, and he looks like kind of a, a nice dog you know i know it's i know it's uh, prejudice for me to say this but they all look alike to me <laughs> That's you are going to get email. Um, all right, we're going to grab a quick break here. We want to talk about something else uh, too with David Plotz while we have him. We ha- let me just quickly say also we have a re- pretty long segment towards the end of the show where we're going to be talking uh, with Charlie Nash and with her lawyer. Uh, they are pursuing the right to sue the state over the chimp attack. Um, we recorded it earlier today just because I wasn't. Charlie Nash is still. Um, uh, something of a prisoner of, of the terrible injuries she received. I just wasn't sure, you know, how long she could talk or how comfortable she'd be. So we we pre-recorded it, uh, which is not our usual uh, means. So we're going to take a quick break here. We're going to come back with more David Plotz. Me and my family, the animals are loaded inside. Finally, this wicked world I'll leave behind me. Inside the ark, we're safe. Because I am old, which is one of the things we're going to discuss in this segment, uh, I get very excited any time I hear the mention of any kind of brace because my body's starting to feel like it would it would welcome any kind of brace. So the leg brace thing uh, caught my ear. Um, David Plotz, before we move on to the ageism thing, I just want to say one last thing or I, I probe you about one last thing about Noah, which is wouldn't you aren't you fascinated now to see kind of exit polling on Noah? Um, and I just feel as though fundamentalists are going to have some problems with this movie. Um, there's already kind of a conservative backlash against the movie for being environmentalist. Um, there are going to be people like me who are, you know, bothered by the rock monsters. I mean, I just feel like this movie is going to have sort of a Rorschach quality a little bit for the people who see it. Yeah, I, I, it's certainly one that the studio was very anxious about it. They didn't let a lot of people see it in screenings. 
they they had a very um, uh, confused attitude towards Christian groups that once sort of they were sort of wanted buy-in, but then they wanted to keep it away from them because they thought they'd get backlash. Um, it's it's hard to see how you'd make a Noah story where the where the the backstory wasn't environmental, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, that was the same when they the Steve Carell did a terrible Noah movie a few years ago, and that was also an environmental fable. So so it's hardly surprising that he went for that. No. Um, well, I want to just uh, shift gears here. One of the things, one of my Friday rituals is uh, I go to the gym with my phone, uh, which I have Stitcher loaded onto, and uh, in, in the late afternoon, early evening, I listen to the Political Gab Fest, which is hosted by David Plotz. And um, one of the things you talked about this week was the issue of ageism as it plays out in A, the coming 2016 political race, and, and B, uh, in Silicon Valley. Let, let's, let's first of all talk about the political race. Specifically, there are articles written and there are things said suggesting that, in particular, Hillary Clinton is, for some reason or other, too old to run, right? Well, it's actually funny because there aren't actually articles written saying Hillary Clinton is too old to run because no one no one is willing to really make that case. And it would be very hard to make that case. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would be a form of kind of bizarre, blatant age discrimination without foundation that no one really wants to stand up and make. She's a, a woman who's in good health. She is in possession of all her faculties. She is a woman of, you know, uh, of enormous accomplishment and energy. And so it's hard to see how anyone could actually make that case. What there is instead is there's, there's two things going on. One is, is the classic political pundit like, uh, is, you know, is Hillary Clinton's age an issue mm-hmm. without actually saying it's an issue? And the other is Republicans attempting to try to use their crop of quite young potential presidential candidates, most of their, most of their likely uh, nominee, potential presidential nominees in 2016 are 40s or maybe early 50s, uh, in contrast to Hillary, and just talk about how young and energetic their, theirs are. Um, and, and so again, they're not, no one, is, no one in, the, in the GOP is out there explicitly saying our, our, she's too old, because I think they know that once you say that, and once you make that part of your campaign, you will get smacked around the head, because she just clearly isn't too old. And age is such a relative thing. I mean, as uh, I'm ta- speaking to you from uh, Hartford, where we have a lot of insurance underwriters, most of them would rather take the policy on Hillary uh, in her late 60s than on the 51-year-old Chris Christie, uh, for obvious reasons. Um, and as- that would be a great story. Has anyone done that, where they just take, <laughs> they try to take their their two health histories, insofar as they're known, to two insurers and see which one's the better bet? Consider that my donation of the day to Slate.com. You can just assign that in the late afternoon uh, and let somebody run with it. I I think it is really an interesting question. And also perception is so important, right? The problem for John McCain uh, in 2008 was not that so much that he was too old, but that at times he seemed too old. Specifically, when the financial crisis hit, uh, Barack Obama seemed to know what he thought about it and how he wanted uh, to behave about it. McCain seemed flummoxed, at least temporarily. Um, it's things like that, that that confirm or or overturn a set of presuppositions. Right. That's exactly right. And and there's also an interesting, just when you think to, forward to 2016, there, some Democrats, I think, self, um, self-interestedly are saying, is it going to be the case in 2016 that, that there will be the, the backlash against youth, against President and President Obama? We've had a very young... 
president, and there's a sense that he perhaps came into office without as much executive experience. I mean, I don't personally subscribe to this, but without as, enough executive experience. And therefore, let's, if you think this has been a bad eight years, let's not make that mistake again. And one way you could make that mistake again is by bringing in a Marco Rubio, who's been a junior senator, or a Ted Cruz, who's been a junior senator. Why not look to experience? Why not look to Hillary Clinton, a woman with executive experience, with legislative experience? Uh, and so we, we know this is a woman who comes into the White House prepared for the job in a way that our last president wasn't. That's a, that's a Democratic argument for age, which I suspect they will make very strongly in 2016. Although, I, you know, it might be a mistake to look at just the last president. Really, the last three presidents represent, A, the ascendance of the baby boom, starting with uh, the older George Bush handing off to, to Bill Clinton. So Bill Clinton, uh, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, who is just barely a, a baby boomer. I mean, he just squeaks in uh, under the limbo bar. Um, and, and so... We really kind of have a generational question ahead of us, too. I mean, do we want to give the baby boom one more chance to run the country? Um, or is it time to really, you know, make that Republican argument that you're citing and, and hand it off to what would essentially be in some of these cases? Uh, I don't exactly I don't know Marco Rubio's birth year, but I'm assuming he's not a baby boomer. That that No, he's younger than I am. He's he's definitely not. I mean, he's a whatever Gen X. Yeah. Whatever or, I am is what he is. Um, and, and, and I mean, another part of this, isn't it also the case? I mean, what we've seen with these last three presidencies is, is that America has gone through a period anyway, where it seems to like a slightly younger person running the country. I mean, George H.W. Bush would be the last sort of kind of older president. And since then, there's been a preference for a younger guy. Well, George, uh, George W. Bush was not that young as president. George W. Bush was older than Bill Clinton, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. And and I think we have in, in Clinton. You, there's certainly this. Clinton certainly played that to his advantage in '92 when he beat George H. W. Bush, and I and Bar- Obama certainly played it to his advantage against uh, McCain. I mean, it was a it was a great card to play. I don't think that necessarily is dispositive. In general, of course, we are a we we are youth preferring culture, and so all things being equal, you you pick the younger person in general. But I don't think I don't think there are enough there's enough cases of this to say oh the the 46 year old gets five points against the 69 year old. It, it, it's very there 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 are a lot of other factors that go into it. I, and, I, and I you know if Hillary if Hillary Clinton has any health episodes, if she runs and she has any health episodes, if she has another fainting episode, or if she appears exhausted or confused, then it becomes a major issue. But absent that, I don't see where where it hurts her. I'd just like to say, as a baby boomer, I think it would be a tragedy if a generation so epically self-involved and so uh, magnificently uh, claiming of its own prerogatives, uh, if we were to only have three presidents from our generation, <laughs> I just feel like that would that would be such an insult to us. I mean, I, I think we are we've got one more president coming. Whether you it's... do, I well, I I I I, um, <laughs> I don't have a position on that. All right, I'm, I, you know, it's funny. Baby boomers are always a, are. I think my generation, I don't really care. I mean, I think it would be nice to have some present for my generation. I assume we will get one one of these days, but really, it doesn't, doesn't seem to matter that much. You know, we've got about three minutes left, but part of the trigger for this is a series of articles about the Silicon Valley, Well, where 
you know, for everything that we're saying now, it, it really does seem as though 30 is the new 60 in the Silicon Valley. That the, it, it's, uh, the New Republic article, I think, that triggered this a little bit is talks about the brutal ageism of the Silicon Valley. And, I mean, does that strike you as real? I mean, there's been sort of a set of counter-narratives, too, talking about Steve Jobs doing his best work in his 40s. Larry Ellison is like 69 years old. And people who started Shutterfly and Zipcar and stuff are all kind of midlife people. I mean, how how... Real does that whole Silicon Valley ageism thing seem to you? Well, I think there are two separate issues. One is with the kind of people who start companies and VC funding. And I think there is a profound ageism in that, and for two reasons. One is the VCs that tend to want to make gigantic returns on things. They don't want to make reasonable returns. They want gigantic returns. And they want people who are going to risk everything, throw everything at it, at ideas that may have a 100x, 1,000x return for them. And the, those tend to be, the people who are, going, who are willing to throw everything out tend to be 25-year-olds, not 40-year-olds. So that's part of it. The other part of that, the reason I think the VCs are biased is recency bias, which is they've seen Mark Zuckerberg and, and the guys who founded Tumblr and, um, and the, 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 Insta, uh, not the, Insta, the Snapchat people, and they're all wearing hoodies, and they're all young guys. And so you've seen a lot of guy, young guys in hoodies, so let's try for other young guys in hoodies. That's a, that seems to be a tested method for finding a potentially successful entrepreneur. I think that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is within the culture of these institutions, like if you're, if you're not, the, VC, if you're not the, the, the entrepreneur, if you're not the person who's starting it, you're just an employee at a, at a Google or at a, at a startup of some sort, is there... Is there a bias against you because you're 35, 45? And I suspect in some places there's a huge bias, and some places there probably isn't, and it varies from place to place. There was a, there was a funny example in one of the stories of, uh, of some woman who's in her early 30s, and, and her, she's a manager, and all the people who report to her call her a den mother. Yeah, I saw that. Hey, yeah. David Plaz, we're going to have to wrap up here pretty soon. I do, first of all, thank you incredibly. It's a great honor to have you on the show today. I, I think the solution, by the way, is labeling, like they do with GMOs and stuff like that. I insist on something having some geezer product in it. Uh, so, so labeling may be the solution. I won't buy anything from Silicon Valley now that uh, people my age didn't have something to do with. David Platz, uh, so great to be with you. We've got to take a little break. Oh, we're going to come back with Charlie Nash. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, our intern is Skylar Magnoli. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNDR Colin. Katie Talarski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Nick Nolte. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff on an all-inclusive luxury Viking Ark cruise stopping at five-star flooded restaurants and vineyards, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, meet people who pull high-level pranks. And now, back to Colin. In February of 2009, Charla Nash answered a call from her employer asking for help with the woman's pet chimpanzee who was agitated. The resulting encounter put Nash in a coma for four months. The animal broke most of the bones in her face, ripped off her lips, her nose, her eyelids. The animal also ripped off both of her hands. Today she is blind. She has glass eyes. 
She has had a full face transplant. She has one thumb. Uh, Earlier today, we spoke to both her and her lawyer. Most people know the story, or at least some of the story, of what happened on February 16th, 2009. Uh, A chimpanzee named Travis um, got uh, out, went on a rampage. Uh, Most people also know uh, that uh, one person was was brutally mauled and nearly killed in that rampage. Uh, that was Charla Nash. She is one of our uh, two guests here today. The other guest is uh, Charles Willinger. Uh, he is a uh, managing partner at Willinger, Willinger and Busey uh, in Bridgeport. He is Charla Nash's attorney. Um, Charla Nash, thank you for joining us by phone. And just tell us, I I don't want to walk you through the events of that horrible day. I'm sure you have to be walked through them enough anyway. But just tell us why it was that you were the person who was summoned and brought into contact with this chimpanzee. Um, Thank you for having me on the air today. But I I, I also want to let you know, Mm. I don't remember anything. I don't remember the attack. Mm-hmm. I, I just remember some time or another waking up in a hospital. I understand. Well, what was your relationship to Sandra Harold, the woman who owned that chimpanzee? I was an employee of Sandra Harold at her towing company mm-hmm. in Stanford, Connecticut, and I would answer and dispatch all the tow calls. Um, to um, other people. Um, and um, so, Attorney Willinger, I'm going to go to you for just a second. One of the things that's happening here is that your client is uh, suing the state of Connecticut or seeking, in fact, permission, legislative permission through special act uh, to sue the state of Connecticut. Explain why that is. Okay. Colin, good morning. Uh, yes, the the way the statutes read uh, in Connecticut, there's the doctrine of sovereign immunity, the doctrine that the, the uh, king could do no wrong, dating back to the 13th century. It's archaic. It should be abolished, but it isn't. Uh, it requires when you sue or seek to sue the state that the claimant file a claim with the uh, one person called the claims commissioner. The claims commissioner denies the claim. The only appeal is uh, through the General Assembly, and that's where we are now. And, Charlin Nash, if you wanted to explain in your own words why you need to sue the state of Connecticut, what would you want people to know? As people who are are listening to your story and trying to understand why there might be a lawsuit, uh, what would you want them to understand? Um, I want them to understand that um, I don't I, I think this, well, I know the state knew that Travis was a dangerous animal, which I had no idea of, of the information that was out there. And as I understand now, there was a memo released three or four months prior to me being attacked, and I had known anything about that memo. I I surely would not have been near Sandra Harrell's house at all. 
Yeah, um, Attorney Willinger, look, looking through the documents um, associated with this case, I mean, the memo she's talking about is kind of a smoking gun memo, right? It's from October 28, 2008. Uh, it's an employee of the Department uh, of Environmental Protection, which is the agency that would have some jurisdiction over wild animals uh, or wild-type animals being kept in the home. And and maybe you can explain, Attorney Willinger, what this memo says. Okay, well— Colin, it's much more than just a memo. Uh, yeah. Let me first say that the the DEEP, formerly Department of Environmental Protection, now it's called the DEEP, is actually the state agency and the only state agency with exclusive jurisdiction over the possession of exotic animals. And this person who wrote the memo, Elaine Hinch, it was the person that is in charge of permitting or disposing of these uh, animals that did not receive a permit. But what the general public doesn't know is really how much knowledge that, and how culpable in our in our position the DEP was. And uh, if you have a minute, I'd just like to quickly take you through some of the facts because it's much more than the memo. Yeah, and I was going to come to that, but so uh, why don't we do that? Obviously, okay. th- these were just conversations that went on for years. They included representatives of something called the Simeon Society right. uh, and other groups that were aware of Travis and, and aware uh, of some of the problems with them. But, yeah, go ahead, yeah. Su- summarize some of well, that. Well, I, and I'll just hit the key ones, but mm-hmm. it really starts in October of '03 when Sandra Harold's chimpanzee, chimpanzees, by the way, uh, are well-known, especially to the EP, to be very aggressive and very strong when they hit maturity. Uh, they're the strength of five or six men. They're in the gorilla family, uh, and they're so uh, unpredictable and wild that even zoos don't particularly want to have these animals, uh, these chimpanzees. In any event, Sandra Harold's chimpanzee, she named it Travis, uh, escaped in downtown Stanford in 2003, and that's when the animal really uh, uh, was focused on the uh, the DEP's radar, or came under that radar, and it went throughout the entire DEP up to the commissioner level. The commissioner in his deposition, we took 23 depositions in this case. One of them is the, the, the then commissioner, Art Rock, who said the animal was commonly referred to as the gorilla in Stanford. He had heard that the gorilla was actually, or the chimpanzee called the gorilla, uh, was uh, driving a car, and his testimony was that isn't probably isn't the best of circumstances. So back way back in '03, and don't forget the attack was February 16 of '09. So about five and a half years before the attack, uh, Travis first became uh, known, well known to the DEP. It became so well known that in uh, effective May 10th of '04, the DEP uh, amended the statute in question, which we'll talk about in a second, and, and actually amended it so specifically, specifically geared to Travis, we call it the Travis Amendment, so that it would have the authority to seize that chimpanzee. That's actually so special legislation imp- was imposed by the DEP. The statute we're talking about is 2655, and it's simple. What it says is that a wild mammal that weighs more than 50 pounds at maturity, Travis weighed about 200, uh, could not be possessed in a private home without a permit. And if the DEP, DEEP did not issue a permit, the statute says it shall seize and shall dispose of that animal. And that Travis uh, amendment was specifically geared to that seizure and possession, uh, and, uh, possession by the DEP because the DEP refused to give it a permit. 
As a matter of fact, uh, there were a lot of communications, as you said, between the Simeon Society. But the mo I think one of the keys, though, there was a owner uh, very close in uh, proximity-wise to Sandra Harold's home. Uh, her name was Marcella Leone. She, she owned a private zoo called Lions Share Farm. And uh, Sandra Harold called her. They were very close because Marcello uh, Leone did not realize that this chimpanzee didn't belong in that home, had several conversations with the DEP. Uh, in any event, uh, in September of 08, the uh, chimpanzee got loose, and Sandra Harold called Marcello Leone. She wasn't home, but he, she left a, a voicemail on her answering machine. And it was very similar, uh, Marcello Leone testified to the 911 call, that awful call uh, that we all know about. And uh, it was uh, a call where <clears throat> Sandra Harold said, the chimpanzee is out of control. Bring your dart gun. You've got to help me. The animal is out of control. Marcello Leone gets back from the weekend. She's actually showing her son some schools. She gets back Monday morning, hears it, or Sunday night, Monday morning calls the DEP, uh, Elaine Hinch, and said, listen to this, you've got to do something. Elaine Hinch goes to her bosses, uh, Dale May and Ed Parker, and said, look, we've got to do something about this animal. This is, by the way, she had already written uh, uh, her first memo uh, a couple years back about Travis. So now they, she uh, understands because of this 911 call that this animal is really getting out of control. Uh, Dale uh, May and Ed Parker say, you better talk to ENCON. ENCON is the DEEP uh, Law Enforcement Division. Law Enforcement tells Elaine Hinch, look, this animal is too big and too powerful. We don't have the knowledge or the resources to seize it. Why don't you give it a permit? Elaine Hinch goes back to her boss, and they both decide there's no way that they're going to give this animal a permit. Then she writes the second memorandum. And the second memorandum, if you read it, we're not going to do it obviously here, we don't have the time, but literally every line is uh, a cry to, to, from Elaine Hinch to her superiors to do something. The animal is strong. She fears for her own police force to go next to this animal. Uh, and uh, the, her, her, the memo ends with I would like to express the urgency of addressing this issue. It is an accident waiting to happen, and we all know that three and a half months later, uh, the accident uh, did happen, unfortunately. So yeah, and actually, we, ha we have that 911 call here. Let's actually uh, give people a chance to listen to that. Stand for 911. Where's your emergency? Oh, this is Sandy. 231 Rock, Rock Crimson Road. Please send the police. Car. What's the problem there? The, the, the chip killed my, my friend. Oh, please. What's the problem with your friend? I need to know. Send the police up with a gun. With a gun. Please, hurry up. He's killing my girlfriend. Hurry up. They're on the way. With guns. Bring the guns. You've got to kill this chimp. Please, guys. Who's killing your friend? Chim my chimpanzee! She, he ripped her apart! Hurry up! Hurry up! Please! There's someone on the way. We're done! Please! He shoot him! He ripped her face off! He tried to attack me! Please! Hurry up! Listen to me! They gotta shoot him! Please! 
Those are the sounds of the 911 call from February of 2009. You hear a Sandra Herald uh, and you hear the chimp Travis. So, Colin, based upon these facts, the memos, the fact that they're the expert, DEP is the expert, they knew, you see, that Sandra Harold could not, and this is in Elaine Hinch's testimony, in her deposition testimony, she knew that there was no way that Sandra Harold, as a private homeowner, could ultimately uh, control that animal. So I, I just just because our time is limited, I, I, looking at the paper trail that you've assembled, uh, there is quite a paper trail, uh, and and there is quite a history, as you've just said, uh, of the then DEP being aware of this, being aware at least at, at some level that it was a problem, uh, not acting on it, um, and and I guess in some cases the relevant people who were supposed to be getting this email email either to use their words missed the memo or didn't open it or something like that. Um, Right now, your job is to convince the legislature, as opposed to a court of law, uh, to allow a lawsuit to go forward. Um, explain what kind of process that is for you, because it is different, right, than making uh, a, a straight judicial argument or a straight legal argument. Uh, you actually have to convince elected officials to permit something to happen, which ordinarily can't happen. Right. Unfortunately, there is no court of law that can weigh in on, on this part of the proceedings. I wish there were, because the scope of review or the standard of review for both the claims commissioner and for the General Assembly is simple. By, by a statute, it's 4-159C, the Gen- General Assembly can grant us permission to sue if they find two things. Number one, if they believe that Charla's claim is just and equitable, which means fair. Would it be a fair, for, in these cases, in these facts, would it be fair for her to sue? And second, uh, they have to believe that the Charla's claim would present an issue of law or fact under which the state were it a private person could be liable. So they don't have to decide liability. All they have to say is, under these facts, is it possible that a court of law could find the DEEP was negligent? I think a court of law could find them grossly negligent, frankly. So those are the only two things that technically we would have to address before the uh, General Assembly. Is it fair to sue? Could the DEEP be liable? We don't think there's any question but that... uh, uh, grant, given that, if the General Assembly would focus on that, we will have our day in court. And it's our hope that they, they will. Of course, they've uh, raised a number of other issues which are extraneous technically, but you know, one is the obviously the cost uh, to this. And secondly, it's, they've raised this argument of uh, opening up the floodgates. Now, that's really a, a, a bogus argument because the facts are so unique here with special legislation. Well, being not passed. only that, but I mean, I've covered special special legislation in the past. This isn't an unprecedented thing at all. I mean, the legislature, somewhat. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know sure. how often it happens, but I, I certainly have covered other special special legislation, which is exactly like this, which was a request for permission or request for the ability to bring lawsuits. So. Right. Uh, I, I don't know if you've documented or figured out how often this happens or how yeah, often the it, legislature it, it, says it, yes. Sure, we have. And it, and it does happen. I mean, a lot of people bring claims. Uh, most of them are denied by the claims commissioner. Very few take the next step to to appeal. In, ba- in essence, it's an appeal to the General Assembly. But it has happened on numerous occasions when the General Assembly did grant relief. Um, Charlotte Nash, you're listening to all this. Um, and... 
You know, one of the things that your lawyer is going to have to do is to convince elected officials, you know, not a judge, not a jury, but elected officials to act in your behalf so that you can bring this lawsuit. Some of those elected officials probably hear from their constituents who say, you know, I didn't tell these people to have a chimpanzee in Stanford. Um, I'm not responsible for any of this. Why should I, the taxpayer, be on the hook for this admittedly terrible accident when I, the taxpayer, didn't cause it? Um, What would you tell them? What would you want them to know to help them understand uh, the way that you feel about it? Um, First of all, I want everyone to know I did not take care of Travis. Travis was um, Sandy's pet companion. I, I don't know. But my job was, Sandra Harold was my boss. I worked for her at her sewing company. I, I, I went to work for her um, in 2000, sorry, uh, I believe, and, and that was to manage a deli for her that she never opened like, all the time that I was there. This, I probably was at her house maybe a half a dozen times a year, maybe once or twice a year uh, to mow her lawn. And and there are other times that I only had to bring boxes and newspapers up and I would walk into the living room, put them on the floor, I did see Travis. He was in a cage, but he was no job of mine other than just dropping off newspapers. And I I want everyone to understand he was not my responsibility. He was Sandy Harold, and whoever allowed Sandy Harold to keep him and house him you, you know, it's, it's, it's not my responsibility. I, I remember I questioned it, and I thought, you know, the state was, in, you know, keeping an eye on him. And I, I always wondered. It was like, wow, it's amazing that the state would allow her to keep the chest in her home. So I was under the assumption, you know, the, the state knows he's there, which I knew they did because he was loose in 2003. I was in New Jersey at the time, and I heard it on the news. Um, but please, you know, don't take it out on me that that was her pet. And, and um, I just, I hope it doesn't get political and that, you know, I'm allowed to have my, my day in court. Um, Charles Willinger, maybe you can tell us where, where are things right now? When will you know? When the, Obviously, the first thing you've got to do is get this, this through committee. So what's the timetable for you well, to find out how you're doing? Colin, we had a hearing a week ago Friday before the Judiciary Committee, and it's our understanding that that committee will uh, issue its recommendation to the full General Assembly either tomorrow or Wednesday. So this is imminent, obviously. 
and and other than the things that we've mentioned so far, I mean, it's obviously very difficult to read a committee, uh, but based on any questions they asked you, based on any informal feedback that you're getting, um, I mean, how do you see this playing out? Do you, do you have a sense of, of what your, your chances are? The two biggest obstacles are the, uh, the legislators fear that a big judgment will enter. And we told the legislature that we would sit down and work out a structured settlement over a number of years so it won't impact the budget. And we stand by that. Uh, uh, and so, obviously, the dollars in a situation where the state is uh, not, let's say, it's not flush right now. It's got its own budgetary and fiscal issues. Uh, so that's one concern. It shouldn't really technically be a concern, but it's a concern. And uh, I would think the second concern they voiced was, well, if you sue, then everybody will sue if well, we don't follow the statutes. Uh, if an agency doesn't follow the statutes, but it's and I and I said that's not a, a cogent argument because in this particular statute, and it's one of very few statutes that have what is called a mandatory or ministerial duty, where you either give a permit or you shall seize and dispose. Most statutes are discretionary; they don't say you have to seize if you don't give a permit. This this particular statute is different. And you know, Colin, the number one function of government is to protect its citizens. And all those people out there that says, hey, Charla uh, shouldn't have gone to, to the property and, and, and Sandra Harold shouldn't have kept the chimp, that's, that's, you know, they may have some point. The court of law will consider that, by the way. That's something a court can consider. Uh, but uh, the fact remains that there was only one agency that had the authority to stop it and could have stopped it and did nothing. All right, this is a fascinating case, and I have to say, going through the through the documents uh, this weekend, it's a it's a different case than uh, than that I thought I understood it to be. So, uh, Charles Willinger, thank you very much for your time, and Charla Nash, thank you also uh, very much for your time. Thank you, Colin. Thank you, Charla Nash. I thank you for all the time. All right. Good luck. Bye-bye. Bye bye.